Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. The current president has cloaked American darkness for much too long. Too much anger, too much fear, too much division. Here and now, I give you my word. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein. We're recording uh, late at night around 1 a.m. here on the East Coast earlier in California after watching. Yeah, this uh, is a this is a totally reasonable 10 p.m. where I am. Yeah, you're you're good. You're 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 you're, you're coasting. <laughs> um, we, we watched uh, Joe Biden speak, wrap up the, the Democratic convention. I uh, want to talk about that, of course, and be, you know, maybe a little newsier uh, than the weed sometimes is. Um, I sort of wanted to start by talking about conventions in general. Uh, I've been to a bunch of conventions. Uh, I think we met the first time we met was at the convention in Boston. No, not the first time, but uh, it was uh, a, a time after that, I think. We met in New York first, but I once stayed with you. I stayed with you at your dad's house during the RNC in 2004. Four, and, and, and right. And we, and we hung out in Boston at the Democratic convention there in Yeah, in the first convention bloggers were allowed into. Yeah, that same year. And then I went to I went to the Republican convention in 2008 and then Democrats in 2012 and 2016. I really like conventions and I miss them. I mean, I know a lot of people felt this was a good television show, uh, but but personally, I'm a, I, I mean, obviously, most people aren't professional journalists, don't get to go with the passes. Uh, but like I always think it's a good opportunity to like talk to a lot of people. There's a lot of not important, important people in politics, but like state legislators, you know, and like I met the Democrat who was like in some hopeless race for a statewide office in Tennessee and and, and stuff like that. And like, you know, people and you see like a party coming together uh, in person in a way that doesn't really happen virtually. And Barack Obama complimented you on your shoes. That's my main my main recollection sure. from uh, the 2008 uh, convention. But so the thing that I think is important about conventions, particularly in their public facing role, because they have a lot of roles, right? And in a way, they are almost vestigial to their original role now. I mean, conventions used to choose the president. But to set up the conversation we're about to have here, what they do right now is they present the party as a party wants the public to understand it. They are a like an emergent property of who the party is. And so what needs to be done to satisfy those constituencies and also what the party believes the American people want, right? Conventions are both about unifying the, the base uh, behind the candidate and also about making not just a candidate, but also this is really important, I think, also about making the base palatable to, to the rest of the country. So 
the people who might not have been sold by the primary, who might have been unnerved by positions taken or ads run or conflicts that got worked out during the primary, feel comfortable with the party in the general election. Right. And so one of the things, one of the differences with the traditional convention, right, is that people at home, you would like never even see this, but like the programming at a normal in-person convention is long. Like the broadcast networks will air maybe like an hour of it and the cable networks will air like a few hours of it, but it'll start like at noon. You know, and there's hours and hours and hours of afternoon speeches that very few people see. But it means that you really do get to do this sort of coming together, right? Like, it it, it is what the party is, because, like, all the governors will speak. Like, tons of random backbench house people will speak. And then you edit, right, by selecting, like, who goes in primetime, who gets long speaking slots, things like that. Uh, but it's it's different from this was a more much more heavily curated experience, right? A Democratic Party television show in which the two kind of roles sort of merge together, in which normally you could keep somebody out of primetime, but still give them time to speak so that nobody could say, well, you were excluded. You were just sort of not highlighted. Uh, But here... Everyone who was on at all was at least a little bit highlighted. So it created these sort of like big tension points around like AOC's nominating speech for Bernie Sanders, because she's both like a very famous and well-known person who people are very excited about, but also a lightning rod of criticism and not somebody who Democrats want to be like the face of the party. The way they would normally handle this is something like she speaks at 6 p.m. She has a huge social media following who would all see her speech and other people just kind of wouldn't and it would be fine. But instead, there was this sort of like dance, right? In which like, unless you wanted to totally cut somebody out the way they did with um, Julian Castro, they have to be like in the show. And then it means that the show serves the dual purposes of sort of an external presentation, like we want to make people like us, but also an internal communication, like this is who we are, this is who we value, this is what we're trying to, to see. And I did think you saw a sort of Well, at times it looked to me like a tension, maybe after Biden's speech, which I thought was really good. It just seemed more like a a productive synthesis of kind of like what what's on Democrats minds versus what do Democrats want to say to the country? Just like cut to the chase. I think the question here is like, if you just tune into American politics right now, you didn't know that much about it and you watch the convention start to finish. What is the Democratic Party in your mind? Right. And it's most useful now to work backwards from Joe Biden's speech. Because Joe Biden's speech was fundamentally not a partisan speech. I mean, in a way, it was an explicitly not a partisan speech. He said, I'm a proud Democrat, and I'll be proud to carry the banner of our party into the general election. So it's with great honor and humility, I accept this nomination for president of the United States of America. But while I'll be a Democratic candidate, I will be an American president. I'll work hard for those who didn't support me, as hard for them as I did for those who did vote for me. And what the Democratic Party tried to do across this convention with varying levels of success is paint itself 
not as an ideological party, although it's a party with ideological people in it, but as a home for anybody who doesn't believe Donald Trump represents America correctly. And so there was a lot of attention given to Republicans who no longer support Trump. I mean, they had John Kasich and Meg Whitman and Colin Powell, and they had like the ghost of John McCain. And they had these Republicans, like just people, like this one guy, Mike, who <laughs> they would replay their little Zoom calls about why they're doing Joe Biden again and again. And all the way on the other side, you have your AOC, who got very little time. Um, we can talk about that if you want. Um, but you had Bernie Sanders, you had Elizabeth Warren. And so, I mean, this was a party trying to present itself as assembling a coalition that stretched from John Kasich, who was like a Gingrich Republican, all the way to Bernie Sanders and AOC. And that's not a coalition that can govern. I mean, at some point, you have to disappoint one of those factions, or you're going to disappoint both of them by doing nothing. But it is potentially a, a party that can win a campaign. And that was really Biden's speech. I mean, what I found bracing about that speech was this just unbelievable bluntness. It wasn't a complex critique. It wasn't a like a like a gorgeously crafted metaphor about America. Like Biden walked out and he said, this is a collision of light and darkness, of love versus hate, of unity over division. I mean, it's like Lord of the Rings out there. Mm-hmm. And it's not crazy, right? Donald Trump creates the opportunity. He paints in such broad brushstrokes that he creates opportunity for that kind of message. But so that, to me, is what they were trying to do across it. Different nights did it with different levels of success. But it was the broadest I have ever seen the Democratic Party try to present itself, not, by the way, really because of the moderate Republicans. What made it so broad was actually the presence of Bernie Sanders and, and AOC. The Democratic Party doesn't really stretch further right than it has tried to in previous conventions I've attended. A sort of moderate Republican governor would always be welcome. What it actually did was it stretched further left, and that's what made the tent so much bigger. Right. Well, they, but they also kind of like stretched off in a different axis of, of agreement, right? So that like Bernie's policy views are well to the left of what you you know, at least pre him getting a big speaking slot in 2016, to, to the left of, of what you would hear from Democrats. But his topics, right, which are like wages and health care and the size and scope of the welfare state are exactly what you would have heard at a Democratic convention in 2004 or 2000 or 1996, right? But Democrats have also stretched in another direction, uh, which is like Barack Obama's speech, right? Which was very um, dark by Obama's standards, but not dark in the dwelling on COVID kind of way that that Biden's speech was, but with these kind of like potents of democracy collapsing and like political freedom uh, falling apart. And that's a different kind of like, thematic element. And it sometimes feels hard to, between the moderate element, the like left on policy element, and this kind of like, we're in a crisis, you know, like an existential crisis for the the salvation of the, the country type stuff. It's like, it's a little hard to believe that everybody is existing in the same reality, right? Because like, we need to address medical bankruptcies and the president of the United States is trying to become a dictator are like, it's, that's not a difference of degree, right? It's like, you're actually having 
completely different discussions about what's going on in the world. Uh, and then the pandemic also looming all over it. And I, I, I do think if you sort of like stack it all real to real, particularly nights three and four, it's just a little confusing, you know, as to like what's actually happening then like at the end like biden speaks and he's the nominee so to an extent you know his his vision is the one that that kind of counts most but it really does as you say like it raises the question of like say everybody achieves their quest and they and they slay trump and like how are they going to govern the country and you know i have some thoughts about that we have some good articles on vox.com but i don't think the convention paints a particularly clear story, uh, just because it's obvious that there's a, a good deal of of disagreement. And, and by choice, right? I mean, in some ways, the most provocative line on this, and I'm going to paraphrase this one from memory, but was from John Kasich, where he said, you know, I don't think my friend Joe is going to run off to the left after he gets elected, mm-hmm. right? And that it was a very, um, it was a real jab at like your Bernie Sanderses, your AOCs from a Republican speaking at the convention and, and AOC like shot back that I don't think an anti-choice Republican is going to get to decide the future of our, uh, of, of the Democratic Party. But, but I'm, there was genuine tension there in a way that you don't always see at these conventions. Um, I've been thinking a bit about how this year differed from 2016 and in a broader way, how Joe Biden differs from Hillary Clinton. I wrote a piece this week about the tragedy of Hillary Clinton that I thought was on display at this convention. Hillary Clinton, like nothing gets people like shunted more into whatever the opposite of Hall of Fame is in American politics than losing. And Hillary Clinton lost a very important election in 2016. And so she's become, the party's very complicated relationship with her. She's like a reminder of a trauma. And her, I would say, strengths get forgotten. Her weaknesses get really amplified. One thing that's interesting about Clinton is that Joe Biden sort of wipes out a lot of the high-minded criticisms of her. Um, if you thought Clinton was too much of a centrist, an establishment figure, like a like a cautious insider in an, a, a country that likes bold outsiders, right? That she like you know did a little bit like too much buck raking or something. Like Joe Biden's got for most of that more of that in his background than she does, and is like less well briefed, less sharp on policy, etc. What he's got is this kind of genial old white guy capacity to be really likable. Like people never thought Hillary Clinton was likable, but Joe Biden, by golly, he is likable. But one thing that was also different that I was reflecting on more tonight is that Clinton running in the immediate aftermath of Obama and running against Donald Trump and sort of matching Trump's energy backwards ran a much more and could not avoid running a much more, given just the nature of being the first woman uh, presidential nominee from one of the two major parties, ran a campaign in a convention that was much more built on this idea that there was a rising demographic changing majority and that she represented that and we were stronger together and like it was going to like, you know, be, be this whole different future. Like she's a continuation of what Obama represented. And Joe Biden, particularly in his speech tonight, um, but also he does this in part by virtue of being an old white guy who's been in politics forever and wasn't in politics as like the most well-known female politician during decades when there were relatively few. He runs in some ways a very similar campaign. It's primarily about how Trump is bad and he's a racist and so on. But he's able to sort of do it in this softer edge way. And because Trump is now the incumbent, right, it's not like like he's going to finish off the victory. It's like he's beating back the forces of evil. And I'd be curious for your reflections on that, because in in one way, what Biden's been able to do that Clinton wasn't, I think, really speaks to 
the disadvantages that trailblazers still face, women still face, people of color still face in American politics. And on the other hand, there were strategic decisions there too. And Biden does choose to emphasize some things and not others. And like it's a it's an interesting, it's an interesting, I think, kind of consequential mix. I mean, you know, the contrast between Biden and Hillary is always going to be colored by the fact that he's a man and she's a woman, right? So, you know, we can sort of toss out hypotheticals and it's sort of un- unknown and unknowable. Um, something that I thought was interesting, you know, in terms of tactical choices was Tammy Baldwin's speech Thursday night, which was, you know, brief and not like a, a super uh, elevated thing. Um, but if you if you look at it, right, this is a speech, it's almost exclusively about healthcare. Um, you know, she touches on a few other things, but it's an incredibly meat and potatoesy type speech. Um, the kind of thing, not grandiose enough for it to be like Joe Biden's speech accepting the nomination, but, you know, sort of Biden-ish, right? Like, like old white guy trying to be genial, trying to get Midwestern votes, except she's a woman. And she's not just a woman. She's a she's a gay woman. She's the first LGBT senator. Uh, she was the first LGBT woman in Congress. And she didn't mention any of that, you know? And it was an incredible contrast, I would say, not to Hillary, but it, to Kamala Harris's speech, you know, where Harris is obviously a, a demographic first in a number of ways, the child of immigrants, blah, blah, blah. And in her speech, like she really dwelled on that to a substantial extent, right? Part of the thinking being, look, it's not like people are going to not notice that like she has this uh, somewhat unusual name or, you know, see what she looks like, things like that. So she she talks about it, right, in a way that is supposed to be exciting to, uh, you know, a rising demographic, a, a diverse coalition. I saw a Latino decisions poll indicating that Harris, as a child of immigrants, has a connection with Latino voters and like Biden's ratings have gone up a lot since she'd been rolled out. And, and we'll see how that goes. But that's that's not just a, a fact of who she is. It's a political theory about how you should deal with that. Um, and Baldwin and also Tammy Duckworth, um, you know, who has all kinds of interesting personal story identity issues, uh, but also comes from very much the I'm going to give a bland Midwesterner speech, right, about military service and sacrifice and the president's handling of, of national security issues. A- and that's, you know, a diverse coalition throws up more people who were born in Thailand, more LGBT senators, uh, more mixed race vice presidential candidates. But there is still a tactical choice. And I sometimes think that the people involved in, in Hillary's campaign get into a a world in which they they want to deny that they made any choices at all, like which is clearly not true. They were navigating uncharted waters, right? There had never been a woman nominee before. Uh, There also hasn't been one since. So it's like, it's hard to know how you should try to play that. And they tried it in a certain way, right? The, The wearing suffragette white, right? They tried to make it, make it a thing where the theory was going to be that like a majority of the electorate is women um, and they were supposed to be incredibly excited and affirmatively go vote for Hillary in a way that hopefully would swamp uh, misogynistic impulses or, or other things like that. And they couldn't quite make that work. 
joke, right? But that's sort of the the angle that they're doing. And you saw, you know, there were a lot of African-American elected officials who spoke and they handled it in all different ways, right? Miro Bowser uh, positioned herself in front of a Black Lives Matter, like street art, spoke very directly to President Trump's handling of racial issues, whereas Cedric Richmond uh, just talked about small businesses and how they are suffering during the pandemic and how he has some legislation that will help them. Uh, And, you know, I don't know. It's like you would have to run a thousand controlled experiments and it probably varies on on circumstance. But like there are choices there. Um, And, you know, Biden is like an old white guy, so it, it it makes it easy, I think, for him to make his choice to not portray himself as a exciting boundary breaker. But there's something to it. And and I think fundamentally, I mean, to people who listened to us last week will not be surprised, but like I, I think Baldwin has the better of this, that like you're there as an elected official to tell voters what you are going to do for them, not to tell voters about how exciting your election is. And that's what I think fundamentally works better about the just kind of talking about issues. Let's take a break. And then I want to trace another division that, that I know you've been thinking about that would be interesting to explore. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So something you were talking to me about on the third night, which was the night I heard sort of the most agita from you, um, but it, it reflects a sort of, are you talking about what you're going to do for voters or what you represent in the story of American politics, was the sense that one of the divides that is maybe underplayed in Democratic Party politics is a divide between Democratic Party political professionals and to some degree like hyper-engaged Democrats, right? Um, and the people who vote for Democrats in elections, and also the people who might vote for a Democrat in an election. So I, I want to get you to, to talk through that a little bit more. Like, what what is that? What is the differences? And like, how did you see it play out? So, I mean, I just think one thing you really clearly saw in the presidential race is that like, most like I, I live in Washington, D.C., so I like I marinate in what the official Democratic Party and the sort of para party, right? The people who work in the think tanks, things like that, like what they think. And just the vast majority of people I know preferred somebody other than Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. 
There were people who liked Beto. There were people who liked Harris. There were people who liked Buttigieg. But all of those candidates spoke in some way to their idea of what the Democratic Party is or should be, right? And, and, and what all of them capture, Cory Booker, is some sense of like, youth and dynamism, and they're the faces of this new America that's diverse and cosmopolitan and thoughtful. And then even though Sanders and Biden are like on opposite sides of a policy spectrum, they are these like two old school white guys, right, who have a kind of gruff manner and blah, blah, blah. Um, But then they wound up dominating the election, right, with uh, younger people going to Sanders, older people going to Biden, both of them with their base in people who don't have college degrees, uh, people who don't have college degrees for the run, like, all the staff on the Hill, like they all went to college. All the people who run the presidential campaigns went to college. All the people at the think tanks went to college. And there's a big, I think, educational gradient in the Democratic Party. And, you know, Democrats are the diverse party. And the Democratic Party working class is diverse in a way Republicans aren't. It's mostly African-American and Latino, but some white people. It's not a non-cosmopolitan group of people, but I would say that cosmopolitan values is not what drives them to it, in part because if you're non-white in America, you gravitate toward the diverse political party, not necessarily because you put an affirmative value on diversity, but because you feel under threat by the Republicans, right? Like, so it's it's a different experience than like a, a white person who decides, aha, I choose to affiliate with the forces of diversity and cosmopolitanism because that's what's important to me versus just being like, yeah, this is what we all do, right? Like the uh, African-American community institutions like support the Democratic Party. So you have an in-group loyalty and and that can kind of kind of drive you in that direction. And, you know, I, I think Harris and Biden very much encapsulate that duality. Um, there is so much enthusiasm for her among professionals. She has been such a fundraising boon to the Biden ticket, which previously had been a little, it wasn't like they had no money, but like people were not hyped up. Like Joe, Joe Biden is not Democratic Party elite's idea of what the Democratic Party should be, they sort of see it as something between a grudging compromise with the electorate and a kind of like dirty trick, like, ugh, you want this old white guy? Fine. You know, here, we'll, we'll give him to you. Uh, whereas there's a lot more like enthusiasm about Harris. And you saw all throughout the third night, which was her night, a lot of time spent on topics that are important to uh, the sort of core Democrats, right? There was like a big thing about gun control. There was a really long thing about climate change in its sort of like airiest kind of form. We heard that like, there's no vaccine for racism. We've got to do the work. Um, and it's really like Democrats- Third night was a night that focused on immigration. Yeah, immigration. Democrats talking to themselves. And it, and it left me at the end, I was like in white knuckle panic. Like these guys just want to lose. Um, I don't feel that way. I think now having seen the whole gestalt of the convention, it's appropriate to sort of let people 
<laughs> kind of have their have their evening of like let the freak flag fly. But you can see that there's like a difference between the grounded campaign that's like Donald Trump really fucked up this pandemic and the like here's what we think America should be rainbow coalition type stuff and and you I think you really saw that if you flipped the page from 3 to 2. So something that I thought was interesting was a resonance in the way Barack Obama handled the convention this this year and how he's done it in the past for that matter um and how Biden did it. And both of them to sort of talk about the axis that you're tracing here. One of the debates that is both explicit and implicit in a lot of American life right now is how should we understand America itself? And I think the most explicit version of it is a fight over the New York Times' 1619 project, right? Should you rebuild into the American story in a much more central way its founding sins? I have a podcast coming out on Monday with Isabel Wilkerson that's very much about some of these topics. Uh, but there's also just a, a, a more implicit version of it, right? Um, uh, another explicit version of it is how should you understand the Confederacy and all of the monuments to it, right? I mean, you're going to hear a lot about statues, I think, at the Republican Party convention. Um, and then just implicitly, there is a question of whether or not you talk about America with a kind of awe and optimism and a veneration of its story, or it exists as something you have a complicated relationship to and are trying to fix and are, you know, upset about, you know, you, you want to talk about the way white supremacy is built into its foundation. And different people play different roles in American politics, right? There's a role for academics to play and historians and journalists and politicians obviously try to win elections. So they're going to operate with it in this somewhat differently. But even within them, there's a spectrum. But something Obama was always I think the probably the best politician of our lifetime at was synthesizing these into basically retelling a story of America, retelling a story of America that was all about perfection, retelling a story of America where America was great and good because of the people trying to make it better, right? Retelling a story of America where you could always tell that like he was into it. And, and it was really important, like Barack Obama appeared at the Constitution Center, mm -hmm. right? The Constitution is written on the wall behind him during his speech at the, the DNC. And Joe Biden also spoke from that same place, that place where he talked about being motivated to run, watching uh, Donald Trump say there were very fine people on both sides of the Charlottesville debacle, um, the, the neo-Nazi protests. Both of them were trying in their own ways to like reclaim the American narrative, right? Donald Trump has America on his hats, but they're argument is that Donald Trump actually stands outside the American story, that he is the villain in the American story, that he's one of the people who keeps America from being the thing that all of its greatest leaders make it. it there's a really interesting moment tonight. The way um, Biden phrased this, I, I thought was very telling, where he said that um, he talked about this conversation he had, he had had with George Floyd's daughter. And then he spoke of George Floyd as being this moment that was pushing America forward. And then John Lewis's death as being this secondary ingredient of catalytic inspiration. And I think inspiration was a word he used, like a reminder of what American heroes look like. And, and I thought that was interesting and it was important. It's not that a lot of politicians don't try, but, but for different reasons, 
Obama, because he's a genius for it and because of who he is and the way he frames it, actually began creating a counter narrative about America that was very deeply patriotic. Um, and then Biden, because he's just always been like a bread and butter, like wrapped in the flag kind of politician. That was striking. And I think it it really foreshadows like how they're going to run this election. Like they want to write Donald Trump out of the American story. They want to wrap themselves in the flag in a way that he can't. And like he will try to be in the iconography of America, but they're really being very clear that they're going to join this fight and like try to make this, as Joe Biden puts it, a fight for the soul of America. But but in a way, I think it's really a fight for the narrative of America and like what defines like the narrative of like American progress, but more to the point, American greatness. Right. I mean, I, I think, you know, this is a, a, a longstanding sort of you know, disagreement. And you can talk about, um, you know, going back to the the 1840s and 50s, there was this sort of constitutional anti-slavery politics, um, you know, of Lincoln and, and, and the Free Soil Party. And then there was the view, it's always hard to express, right? But there's, there's, there's always been a convergence on racial thinking where some people on the sort of white supremacist side say, look, this is a white man's country that's in the constitution. It's in the uh, original uh, naturalization act of 1790. Um, it's who the founders were. It's, it's what this is all about. And then there's a kind of a, a left version that's like, yeah, this is correct. Right. And who will, you know, they'll write scoldy takes where you're like, what do you mean you can't believe Donald Trump is happening? Like these forces have been lurking beneath the surface the whole time. Like this is a country that had an apartheid state inside its its domestic politics for generations. Um, there's nothing surprising about any of this. And then in the middle, there's the sort of naive liberal patriotism of you know, Barack Obama, of Abraham Lincoln, of, you know, four score and seven years ago, uh, a new nation conceived in liberty, that kind of stuff, which always insists that that the real America is the is the good one. Um, and that tends to have this sort of teleological view of history, right? So Obama likes to likes to use the line about the moral arc of the universe bending toward justice. Uh, the philosopher Richard Rorty talked about achieving our country uh, with Biden. Biden, right? As you were saying, it's like John Lewis dies and that's sad, but like it's a catalyst for further progress. Like everything that happens is secretly good in that narrative because fundamentally America is good. And so it, it will win out. And, and you've heard a lot of that with like hope is stronger than fear and light is brighter than darkness or, or, or something like that, right? So it's it's a very um, upbeat take on America sort of necessarily, because obviously all, <laughs> all the terrible things that the more hard left people say are like roughly true. So you need this kind of different attitude of optimism in which you assert that like, this isn't just an ebb and flow or like one goddamn thing after another, but that actually it adds up to a story of progress where at any given point in time, you are growing closer to the light, um, even if you never reach it. And it's interesting because 
when you're not doing a convention, the sort of more downbeat take on America uh, gets a lot of attention. It's very popular academically. And academics, of course, are supposed to tell the unvarnished truth and like not worry about swing voters. So you hear a lot about that kind of thing. And journalists are influenced by scholars that they read. And then sometimes I feel like politicians on the left start to feel intimidated by the climate from the world of letters. But then, you know, someone on a big stage, whether it's Obama or Biden, will kind of like look around and be like, no, fuck it. I'm going to adopt the rhetorical modes that successful progressive political figures have always used. And when it happens, everybody's okay with it. You know what I mean? Like, Lots of people who read and appreciated the 1619 Project did not react in a negative way to Biden's speech uh, because I think like most people understand, uh, I don't know, just like understand something about politics and like how it works and that they would like Trump to lose the election. All these narratives can also be true simultaneously, right? It's like right. one of my big things that we don't we don't have to choose between truths. But but I want to note on two things you said in there that I think are really important. One thing that really was a difference. Barack Obama has, as you said, often had a, a teleological mode to his rhetoric, right? And an idea that history has a direction. And this has been at times overstated, and people around him will certainly say that it is overstated, right? That he's always said we have to work to achieve it. But it was there. Um it wasn't there this time. Mm-hmm. It was a real different rhetorical mode for him. I mean, he was really, I don't know the quote in front of me, but he basically said, like, your democracy is at stake. You could lose this. We could lose this. Um, John Shade had a piece in New York Magazine saying it's the first time he's ever heard Barack Obama sound scared. And when I saw his headline, I'm like, I, I watch that speech. I like Barack Obama never sounds scared and didn't to me there. But then I read the words the way Shade put them down. I was like, you know, if you actually do just read the speech. And like sever it a little bit from Obama's delivery, it was scared. And Biden said this too, like when he, I mean, when it's light versus darkness, democracy is on the ballot, characters on the ballot. Like these are, these were not teleological modes. Um, Everybody was saying the way they were painting Trump, like the fundamental political system that permits the further achievement of America is at risk. The fundamental ways we participate. The theme of the entire convention was vote. You have to vote. They're trying to not let you vote. You have to vote. You normally don't. I mean, you try to get out the vote, but you're not (laughs) warning people that if they don't try, they may not be able to. And like that was what was happening here. So one, I do think it's notable that that kind of direction of history was weaker in in, in this convention than it has been recently. The other thing that I I think is interesting there is, as you know, Obama... um, had this, we've had a lot of like intensely reformist or, or trailblazing or, or um, foundational presidents adopt this. And a role that Biden played as Obama's vice president and a role that he is playing now as a potential successor to him and certainly a successor to his successor is that Biden takes what Obama frames as the next step for America and by virtue of like being this old white guy who's been in politics forever, just like like shows that it is not 
the next thing. It is just like the thing. I, I thought the sharpest line, and our colleague Zach Beecham wrote a piece about this, but our, the sharpest line of political analysis at the entire convention it came from Andrew Yang, who almost wasn't in it. Um, there was this funny Zoom call where Cory Booker hosted a roundtable, people who lost uh, the primary to Joe Biden. And something Yang said in that, which uh, was spot on. He said, the magic of Joe Biden is that everything he does becomes the new reasonable. If he comes with an ambitious <laughs> plan to address climate change, all of a sudden, everyone's going to follow his lead. And there really is something to that. I mean, you and I have written about this in the context of policy, where Joe Biden, by virtue of sort of running against the leftists in the Democratic Party and by virtue of his long brand in American politics, has taken a strikingly left-wing agenda compared to anything any Democratic nominee, including Clinton or Obama, have run on and made it the new reasonable, right? It's well to the left and well larger in scope than what we've seen before from, from nominated Democrats. But on this, on this question of what America is, which story should dominate, what it means to defend the character and soul of the nation— Biden is taking the case Obama made that was thrilling and new when Obama made it, given the nature of who Obama was, and he's making it the new reasonable. Like, of course, Joe Biden would name a black Indian American woman to be his uh, VP. Like when that when Kamala Harris was named, the New York Times described it as a safe choice. But like, I can tell you, I've been in politics for long enough to say that 15 years ago, naming a black Indian American um California senator with one of the five most liberal voting records in the Senate was not what would be considered the safe VP choice. And so there is a way in which I think a function Biden plays in politics somewhat consciously and somewhat just by virtue of who he is, is like trying to establish things in in the like American center by virtue of being somebody who, because of his own demographics, because of not just the politics he's represented, but again, like being a white guy with Delaware from Delaware who like talks about his Scranton roots and, you know, like has a kind of or certainly had just different points, more working class affect. Um, he tries to make it all the, the the reasonable. And like that was in some ways like one of the interesting handoffs happening here. Biden by not being a first but just sort of surrounding himself with them um, in a way that is like both depressing, but also potentially when the story of this all gets written by like the Rick Pearlstein's of generations from now, like might be very important. Like Biden is like entrenching like all of that as, or trying to entrench it all as like the new reasonable and like just like what it means to be a patriotic middle of the road American politician in the year 2020. Here's what's interesting, right? Is I think, you know, if you read your book, um, which one should, I don't know if you've read your book, but it's clear. I tried, I tried to stop reading at a certain point. <laughs> it's clear. But why we're polarized can be found. Why we're polarized, like one billion Americans, can be found wherever you buy your books. Yes. Um, so it, I think it's pretty clear, right? And and you you go through this in in some detail that the Biden Obama sort of mainstream Democratic diagnosis of the nature of the structural political crisis in America is wrong. You know, that this idea that there is the um, this imminent threat to our democracy, where if you don't use your vote now, you know, you may lose it forever. But then, well, if we win, it's going to be secured. Then, like, that's not right. That the, the, the crisis is rooted in some structural features of the political system, of the parties, of uh, 
the change in the media. I mean, a lot could be improved by Donald Trump not being president anymore. But the basic dynamics that are so troubling to people who are troubled by the Trump administration are not necessarily going anywhere. And I I wish that what we heard at the end of these speeches was like an agenda for a democratic revolution in America that would tackle root and branch uh, flawed aspects of the political system, force the sort of conservative party to compete on something like a more level playing field where I am more like it drives me crazy when I hear Republican senators saying things like, oh, if they make D.C. and Puerto Rico states like we'll never have a Senate majority. Like it's definitely not true. Like there's a Republican governor of Massachusetts and Maryland like conservatism is the most powerful structural force in politics in every country. And there's no conceivable electoral system in which like wealthy business interests and the sociocultural majority group won't find some way to like work together on a, on a political program. But it's that right now they're able to behave so wildly irresponsibly because the bar is so low for for them to win, I think. And you have to actually do something about it. Like you look at these like QAnon people winning Republican primaries, and then everybody dives into like, well, does Trump give the right answers in off the cuff press conferences, which which to me is just like neither here nor there. It's like, what what are you going to do in the structure of the system? Or are we going to just sort of keep like white knuckling it through endless crises. Like everybody takes it for granted now that if Hillary Clinton were president, uh, maybe she would have handled important aspects of the pandemic better, but the economy would totally collapse because there's no way congressional Republicans would cooperate with her. And like, that's really bad. That's like, we can't, we can't have a country on this basis. I'm going to be writing a number of articles on this subject, and so I'm going to put a pin on in this for some future weeds that I want to talk with you about. Uh, but I want to uh, pick up in a slightly unfair pivot here on your point about a low bar, because something that was on display tonight is that the Trump campaign made a what at this point seems to me like a quite significant error in putting the bar for Joe Biden so low. Oh, Sleepy Joe. Yeah, it turns out he can stand up and deliver a speech. I would say by any measure, Biden's convention speech was an excellent convention speech. Like it was it was good by the standards of, of the thing it was. But if you've been told by the Trump campaign that this guy is senile, he can't finish a sentence, you've seen some of these doctored videos and some of the non-doctored videos where he sort of, whether it's a stutter or something else, like kind of like loses his place and restarts in the middle of things. Like, you know, he's he's out a lot. He's an older guy. Like he, he's, he's got his bad moments. I will also say Donald Trump lapses into complete incoherence regularly, does it energetically, but it is like total mania. But if you've been fed a diet of that and then you tune in and just Biden like gives this knockout of a convention speech. It's like no pitches. No, it's like one of the best speeches I've ever seen Biden give at all. And also I've seen Biden now, his best debates are the one-on-one debates he had with Sanders. So it's very possible that in the debate, he's going to show up looking pretty good too with Trump. Like they bet a lot. 
I mean, it was Trump's whole nickname for him. They bet a lot on Biden coming off as a little senile. I mean, Sleepy Joe is like meant to to to, to focus your mind on that. And it's going to be a pro- like what they've got right now are two things Biden is not showing himself to be. The guy's not a socialist and nobody buys the idea that he is. And he's not looking that sleepy. They just ran a pretty damn good convention and he just gave a killer convention speech. And in a kind of classic political mistake, Trump set a bar for Biden that was trivial for him to blow away. And like now the Trump campaign is scrambling. So I mean, they're like from what Trump's like speech today suggested, like their speech is all going to be about how Biden will usher in anarchy and abolish the police and so on, which like, again, does not fit the Biden brand. But like they're really casting about now for something to use on this guy because the things they thought he could use, it came from them buying their own bullshit. Like it came from them looking at doctored clips they were seeing on Twitter. It came from them looking at like dumb stuff they were seeing on Breitbart. And then like, as is often the case with Donald Trump, like he is the first mark of conservative media. And then he echoes it and like, like signal boosts it. But then the pro, like sometimes that works for him, but then a lot of the times it doesn't. And I think on Biden in particular, um, it, it could prove to have been a pretty significant strategic error. Well, and I've been interested. I've been immersing myself a little bit in Trump uh, YouTube ads. And, you know, in addition to the kind of um, Sleepy Joe critique, right, which is interesting because the, the Sleepy Joe critique, when, when you see it in its uh, more detailed editorial form, it has a specific point, which is that secretly these like other more leftist people are going to be running the government and that and that Joe is just that kind of like uh, weekend at Bernie's prop. So it's it's supposed to set up the ideological critique of Biden. Uh, then the other thing they have on this is they've got a number of different videos which are built around saying that Biden said he wanted to defund the police, which is based on uh after Biden said he didn't want to defund the police in an interview, they cut that part out. The interviewer comes back at him and he's like, well, you know, there's some activists who say like, you know, really we should shift some resources into mental health services for different kinds of people. And Biden's like, absolutely, we should take a look at that. So like, that's that's like their case. And they're leaving themselves open they seem to believe that Biden is like very afraid of the base and that like he won't possibly give a speech where he says like, Trump says, I want to defund the police. No, I don't want to defund the police. Donald Trump proposed cutting police funding in his 2020 budget and his 2019 budget and his 2018 budget and his 2017 budget. And he criticized my police funding bill in 1994 and the one we I did with Obama in 2009. And like, I, I just don't like I don't think Biden fears that kind of backlash from the left. You know, he did a lot of work that you've recounted to like build a coalition and put things together. But like in the heat of a presidential primary campaign, he didn't do a lot of bending to left wing activist pressure. And like he's not going to. I mean, there's a super. Do it. There's a super telling moment on this that that I just feel like really buttresses your point. But in one of the like undercard things that happened, Biden had his first or second night this roundtable, and one of the people at the roundtable was Eric Garner's mother. And Biden, in a way that was really striking to me in terms of like what it was signaling, like 
he opens his question to the mother of Eric Garner by saying, and again, I'm paraphrasing here, but you can look up the transcript of this. It's like, obviously, most cops are good cops and they're great. Right. But we got to worry about the bad apples. Yep. Like Biden very, like he he makes a real point speaking to a mother of a slain child, slain yep. by police officers on video to like start that question by saying like most cops are good cops. Like that was a choice. And it was, you know, it was controversial in Vox Slack and, you know, like it's, it, it, it's deliberate, right? And similarly, when he did, he did an interview with Cardi B in, in one of the magazines and, you know, she's a well-informed person and also known to be a, a left-wing person. And she's asking him about something and he, he doesn't use the name, but he brings up the 1994 crime bill. And he says, like, you're right. Like, I put more money into community organizations so people would have other things to do. And it worked for a few years and crime went down. Uh, and then it got stripped out later because people stopped caring, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I think, like, she's um, much better informed about politics than I think your typical um, singer. Uh, but it was not. Frankly, just than your typical person. <laughs> But not quite well versed enough to like pick up what that was a reference to. Uh, but like the point to me was that like he was out there talking about his record, like with potentially skeptical interlocutors. You know, he's not he's he, he's not running and hiding on that particular topic. And Trump has put so much equity into this, you know, like it's. Fine. I mean, but it's like he doesn't have a lot of other arguments that I've seen about Biden other than that he has a secret plan to defund the police, which he just doesn't in a way that I think is easier to debunk than like a complicated theory about email servers or, or something like that. Um, although I do wonder, I mean, it was interesting to see Hunter Biden at the convention. And I and I wonder if if, if they'll go back to the well on, on that kind of stuff, because like what they're up on the air with, I mean, A, it hasn't been working for them anyway. And then the convention, you know, it, it, to me, it's just like left it in the dust. Like, I think I think Trump needs a different a different argument or to cure coronavirus. All right. Do you want to spend a minute here on any predictions or previewing of the Republican convention? Because because I got I got some some questions. <laughs> let's, and let's, I got some concerns. Let's going. What's so we got? So we got I, the, I have two the Covington have Catholic kids. two levels. I'm interested in this um, one. I, I really want to like give some praise here. Running a convention amidst covid, a convention where people cannot gather in the same room is an unprecedented thing in American politics challenging. It could have been unbelievably awkward. The Democratic Party, whoever is running this, they did a killer job. Like it was really, really better than I thought it was going to be like by miles. Like there were some hard cues and whatever, but it was well done and parts of it were actually improved. I mean, the musical numbers are really much better for having that music video dimension. I really liked a bunch of them. Um, so one, they just, they organized something really hard on the fly well. And then obviously there was like a, a, a message, which was um, a reasonable message. I have two questions about the Republican convention. So one is just literally, are they going to be able to organize it effectively, 
right? Um, uh, as one of our colleagues was saying, it's like, even if all you want to do is like grievance and fear mongering, like you still got to like be able to set up the Zoom call. <laughs> and I'm not 100% sure they can set up the Zoom call that well. Um, now, maybe I'm giving them too little credit. Uh, presumably they've like hired some people with technical know-how, but like this was a, this was a much more polished show than I anticipated. And the Trump administration has often been unable to pull off this kind of stagecraft as smoothly as you might anticipate. That's one. They do have a lot of money, though, so maybe they'll paper it over. Um, and then the second is just, man, it is it is hard. It is hard to run for president when unemployment is 10.3% and 170,000. And according to the New York Times, more than 200,000 people have died from coronavirus. And what you are going to have to choose to talk about to try to activate enough social division and fear to swamp the complete catastrophe that is the Donald Trump record is dark. Uh, it, like where this could go is really, really dark. And so like, I don't know how I would write Donald Trump's speech if I were them. And also usually Donald Trump doesn't stick that well to a speech, but I feel like this could go in some really grim directions next week. Uh, yes. Um, I think, I think that that is what will happen. I mean, I also think, I, I think part of the Republican solution to the logistical problems of, um, handling a convention under COVID is just going to be to do it very irresponsibly, uh, like as we saw yeah, with Trump's right. Tulsa rally and things like that. I mean, he, you know, th there's been an ebb and flow, right? And we are definitely back in the ebbing phase of COVID. Like, it's not like the pandemic is gone or it's been fixed, uh, but caseloads have gone down quite a bit over the past two weeks. Uh, hospitalizations are down. Deaths are going down. And I think we're just going to see Trump, like, flip back into uh, cavalier mode. So I don't know. Uh, Attitude Demacy, uh, we should say. I think it was the the main uh, convention coordinator and pulled off uh, a, a really cool show, um, you know, and, and, and kudos there. I think, you know, we, we were talking last week, I think it was last week, about the sort of um, lack of interest in like public policy as it's conventionally understood by the Republican Party. And from what we know about the, the Republican convention, I mean, I feel like they're really leaning into that, that they are seem to be booking various kinds of perceived victims of you know, culture war slights in American society over the past few years, like the the guy from the Covington Catholic School who everybody in the media got like really mad at him, I think kind of unfairly. Uh, and now he's going to be like a conservative martyr or, or something. But what's interesting is that like Trump is not doing anything on those you know, he's he's responsible for the federal response to COVID. Um, there are two different tropical storms uh, that seem to be aiming for the Gulf of Mexico next week. Um, yeah, I want you to know I'm I like can barely go outside right now because there's so many there. This the air is so acrid from wildfires. Yeah, my dad was saying he's in he's in San Carlos and like the power keeps going out and also there's dust everywhere and like already the reason he's there is that he and my stepmom like can't get but I mean they they could get on a plane they don't feel comfortable uh taking the steps that could get them back east and so now the whole state's on fire and like these are things I don't know like the president's supposed to do something about and Trump is like so far beyond that right so it's like 
what can he he highlight? You know, he can he can highlight ugly stuff. He can he can highlight stuff where the conservative viewpoint on it is reasonable, uh, but he can't. I think like really highlight anything where it's like, and if we retake the house, then we're gonna go do this thing or. I'm signing an executive order. Um, they seem to be trying to pretend that Nancy Pelosi was holding up aid to unemployed families, but that's not true. It's a vexing time. Um, and going back to the sort of structural problems in America, I mean, Trump looks like he's going to lose. Uh, all the all the sort of forecasters say that he is, but it's amazing how little his approval rating has gone down as like objective indicators of quality of life in America have just plummeted uh, over, over the past few years. You know, it's like a real, I mean, again, like you have a book about why this is, but like the polarization dynamics that are in place are, they're frightening to me. I mean, more than the specifics of what Trump is doing, but how much his party holds together, how much his support holds together, even in this kind of fiasco, such that almost like almost nobody is even asking. It's like, well, what is Donald Trump going to do next week to convince people that he has a realistic plan to address the pandemic? And like nothing, right? Like, everyone's expectations for him are zero. And it's also not clear how big of a deal it is. And I do want to say, and and this is me maybe talking, literally talking my book, not just using that as the the metaphorical (laughs) idea. But but that is a reason the Democratic and Republican conventions are going to look different. Um, An argument I make in my book, and I'm proud of this argument because it took me time to figure it out. But is like I was trying to understand asymmetric polarization. Like, why does the Democratic Party look so different than the Republican Party, given that they're both um, subject to, to polarizing forces? Why is the Republican Party dealt with it differently? There are a bunch of reasons and things in their media ecosystem matter too. And again, you know, by the book. But one of the just facts of American politics is the Democratic nominee for president and Senate Democrats and House Democrats cannot win the offices they want to win without definitionally winning over center-right voters. Like Joe Biden, given the geography of American politics, cannot win with 50% plus one. He needs probably something on the order of like 52 or 53. Again, it depends how things shake out, but like that's what it looks like. Uh, The Senate has something like a 53, uh, I'm sorry, the Senate has something like a 3.5 point Republican lean. So in all these cases, Democrats have to do things like the John Kasich work because they literally have to win voters who are more conservative than the median voter. Uh-huh. Like it's just like they have to do it. And Republicans just don't. Like the path to a Republican victory is that um they hold Joe Biden to 51% of the popular vote and they win the Electoral College. And they know it. Like I've been talking to Republicans, like they know that perfectly well. And so like that's a that that that's an incentive for pure base mobilization. And like Donald Trump's view of the Republican base is that what they care about is like social grievance and the feeling of being embattled and the media doesn't like them and look what they did to the Covington kid and disorder and so on. But I mean there just is a structural reason Trump plays that in a much narrower way than you would have to. Like another way to interpret that is that if a Republican if the Republican party tried to be more expansive, it could like dominate American politics forever. And like there are also reasons that's probably not true given what their coalition wants. Like you do have a you do have capture by your own base and that 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 
that frustrates a lot of Republican strategies that some members of the party, particularly elite members of the party, would like to try or would have liked to try a couple of years ago. But yeah, there's a reason these conventions look different. And like Joe Biden reflects the Democratic Party and comes from a state where it's like, yeah, you got to win some people who don't agree with you on stuff. And Donald Trump reflects a Republican Party that increasingly is just comfortable with a minoritarian pathway to part to power. And so like that means you like try to break the country in half and you don't even need the bigger half. You just need the slightly better distributed half, but you really need them to get out to vote. So like you need them mad. Um, and so, yeah, like like parties reflect structures and they reflect constituencies. Uh, but but still, it's easier to do this running on a good economic record and not uh, letting the country become like the the global leader and how not to handle a plague than than the alternative. Yes. All right. Uh, it's it's late as hell, and I I, I got to go to bed. Um, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see we'll see what materializes next week. A uh, lot of talk about Ezra's book today because it's it's relevant. Uh, but always relevant is that you should pre order my book as well. One billion Americans uh, coming out September fifteenth. It's really good. It's also much more uplifting than actual current American politics. You know, if you yeah, but you would it. torch the Democratic Party for this message. That's what I learned from you this week. That like, oh, it's Joe Biden message. is going to have to disavow Matt Iglesias' book. Yeah, that's like the it. only way for Joe Biden to win the election is like hold that book up, tell you how to pre-order it, and say nobody should because it's terrible. It's the Overton window. The Overton window. <laughs> uh, we're, we're changing the game. See, like anyway, I, I can. <laughs> We should talk about my book on the podcast uh, in one of these coming weeks. Uh, but until then, we are going to uh, talk about your book. There you go. Um, so thanks. Uh, thanks, Ezra. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will be back on Tuesday. <laughs>